0: Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity to study. And we ask that your Spirit will join us to not only enlighten us, but to transform us to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Our lesson day is lesson eight in the quarterly one, Oneness in Christ. And the title is Unity in Faith. And the lesson this week is about unity in our faith, and the lesson specifically focuses this week on unity of doctrinal beliefs that are unique uh, to the SDA church. And And the lesson points out that in 1888, the SDA church went through a period of great debate of various doctrines, and one of the founders, Ellen White, emphasized a couple of points that the lesson highlights, and this is what the lesson says that we should not expect everyone in the church to agree on every point of interpretation on all Bible texts. But she also emphasized that we should seek unity of understanding when it comes to essential Adventist beliefs. And I thought I would share with you some thoughts uh, from Ellen White in the aftermath of the 1888 General Conference where this controversy went on. It says, in Minneapolis, God gave precious gems of truth to his people in new settings. This light from heaven by some was rejected with all the stubbornness the Jews manifested in rejecting Christ. And there was much talk about standing by the old landmarks. I want to pause. What process is being described here? So according to this author, what was being described is advancing understanding in biblical truth was was. was the Holy Spirit was trying to enlighten people's minds with yet <clears throat> people were resisting it what what insights might have been the Holy Spirit might have been tr- people trying to lead people to understand what do you think you remember this is uh, often called the righteousness by faith movement if you actually look and dig into the history it was a ch- a, a challenge away from a legal Versus a trust in God dynamic. And the focus moved away from a legal understanding of books in heaven to a transformation of the heart for those who trust God. That was the movement. Movement from this legal rules and behaviors towards transformation of the heart by trusting God and the righteousness of Christ through our faith relation with him. And the leaders resisted this movement. We would say it was a movement away from an imperial view, a legal view, to a design law view, to our creator God who wants to heal and restore the brokenness in us. That's how we would just use same same issue, just expressed slightly differently. And what was, what was used, oh and by the way, in the aftermath of the resistance, Ellen White took the side of those who were moving towards transformation of heart by a trust relation with God. She was on that side of the equation. The leadership of the organization was on the rules and legal authority side and legal um, uh, methods of salvation side. And so the leadership shipped her to Australia. The leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist organization was in North America. And I want you to pull out a globe sometime and say, if I'm going to put somebody on the earth as far away from North America as I can get them, where do I send them? And you go just in uh, a line straight through North America, you end up in Australia. Okay, So they shipped her to Australia. Get her as far away as you can. And in Australia, she wrote four major works while she was there. She was there from 1890 to to, to 1900. And she wrote Desire of Ages, Christ Object Lessons, Steps to Christ, and Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing. And if you read those four works, all four of them teach design law and God's plan to heal and restore in his children his character of love. That's what they all really teach. Okay, Going on with her, her words. But there was evidence... They knew not what the old landmarks were. Oh, and the, and, the, and the argument that they used to stop this movement towards the righteousness by faith or design law and God's healing and restoration was they were moving away from the old landmarks. That's what, that was their argument. But there was evidence they knew not what the old landmarks were. There was evidence... And there was reasoning from the word that commended itself to the conscience, but the minds of men were fixed, sealed against the entrance of light, because they had decided it was dangerous error moving, removing the old landmarks, when it was not moving a peg of the old landmarks. But they had perverted ideas of what constituted the old landmarks. This is a false argument, and it's still happening today. We get this all the time. I can't tell many people in the organization that have conversed with me about what we're teaching here say, well, I can't support you because you're moving away from the old landmarks, or you're moving away from church tradition, or what people in the past have taught. One of the landmarks under this message was the temple of God, seen by his truth-loving people in heaven, the ark containing the law of God, the light of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, flashes strong rays in the pathway of transgressors of God's law. The non-immortality, the wicked, is an old landmark. I can call to mind nothing more that can come under the head of the old landmarks. All this cry about changing the old landmarks is all imaginary. Now, at the present time, God designs a new and fresh impetus shall be given to his work. Satan sees this and is determined to it shall be hindered. What do you think the new and fresh impetus was?
1: God's character of love.
0: And how how did Satan oppose this new and fresh impetus? Same way he's always opposed it. So it was the three angels' message being presented of worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the It was a movement towards, again, God as creator and God as recreator, restorer, rebuilder of the hearts and minds of his people. This was the movement. Satan opposes it by getting us to interpret whatever doctrines we held through the imperial imposed law construct. Thus, we might have a fact right about a particular doctrine, but when we present it through an authoritarian rule book, then we misrepresent the whole thing and misrepresent God. And that was his strategy. He knows that if he can deceive people who claim to believe the present truth and make them believe that the work of the Lord designs to do for his people is a removing of the old landmarks, something which they should with most determined zeal resist, then he exalts over the deception that he has led them to believe. This is, I've seen this, I can't tell you many times I've traveled around and people say, oh, pastor so-and-so says that you're opposed to the, to the fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church. have you read my book? No. Have you listened to my class? No. Have you? No, because, because you're removing the fundamental beliefs, see the old landmarks. This argument is still used today. So people won't investigate. The work of this time has certainly been a surprising work of various hindrances owing to the false setting of matters before the minds of many of our people. That which is food to the church is, re- is regarded as dangerous and should not be given them. And this slight difference of ideas is allowed to unsettle the faith, to cause a apostasy, to break, down up, to break up unity, to sow discord, all because they do not know what they are striving about themselves. Brethren, it is, not be- is it not best to be sensible... Heaven is looking upon us all, and what can they think of recent developments? While in, this, while in this condition of things, building up barriers, we not only deprive ourselves of great light and precious advantages, but just now, when we so much need it, we place ourselves where light cannot be communicated from heaven that we ought to communicate to others. Now this, this paragraph is, is quite interesting. The men in responsible positions have disappointed Jesus. They have refused precious blessings and refused the channel of light as he wanted them to be. They choose to be channels of light as he wanted them to be. The knowledge they should receive of God that they might be a light and blessing to others, they refuse to accept and thus become channels of darkness. The Spirit of God is grieved Never can the heart be stirred up with envy, with evil surmisings, with evil reports, but the intellect becomes unbalanced and cannot decide correctly any, any controverted point. The attributes of Satan, which have found entrance to the soul, cannot harmonize with truth. Well, What men of responsibility do you think she was referring to here? Men of responsibility have disappointed Jesus and have rejected truth and therefore they become agents of darkness. Could this be ordained ministers? Could this be conference officials? Could this be happening in church today? Could this state of affairs historically, which happened over a hundred years ago, have actually altered the course of the institutional church of the Seventh-day Adventist institution? That we went down a path that, that institutionally we were never to go down? Is that possible? Because men in leadership rejected this truth about design law, this truth about God's plan to heal and restore his image within people, rejected this idea that that we have righteousness of a reality in our being through trust in God as we open the heart to him, and instead promoted this whole legal construct that we're going to deconstruct here in a moment. And what does it mean to you in regards to allowing those in leadership to determine your beliefs? Well, pastor so-and-so says. Well, conference president so-and-so says. In fact, uh, eight years ago when we had some dialogue with some people in local leadership, one of the things one of the associate pastors told me was that the senior pastor was the Lord's anointed and I didn't have any right to question what he taught. Really? I Don't say it all the time, but I'll say it again. I am not here to do your thinking for you. Come Reason Ministries is not designed to tell people what to think. We are designed to present evidence and truth and stimulate you to exercise your own reasoning ability, your own individuality, your own mind, fully weigh the issues in your own mind and come to your own conclusion. So what are the essential Adventist beliefs? The lesson highlights five truths for, for the SDA church. I call them the five S's. If you want to remember the five S's. Salvation in Jesus. Second coming of Christ. Sanctuary. Sabbath and State of the Dead. Those are the five S's. The only White quote above stated that these doctrines were to be presented in a new light. In a new light. What's the new light? I'm going to suggest the new light was getting the, out of an imperial authoritarian legal construct and presenting them in the, the, the protocols about how, which God created reality to operate. Design law. And when in fact we present the very same doctrine under an imposed law of view, we present a beastly system. Because we present a coercive system. We present a God over here who must breach, uh, police breaches in, in his law and then he must use his power to punish and coerce and threaten and torture and kill those who aren't loyal to him. That's beastly. Even though we may have the right doctrine of some sort. So let's go to Sunday's lesson which is salvation in Jesus. Second paragraph reads, The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that that the good news is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Christ's death is the means of our reconciliation with the Father, bridging the chasm left by sin and death. For centuries, Christians have pondered the meaning of Jesus' death, resurrection, and reconciliation that he came to accomplish. This process of reconciliation has been termed atonement, an old English word that originally meant at one meant. This is a state of being at one or in agreement. Accordingly, aton- accordingly, atonement denotes harmony in a relationship, and when there has been estrangement, this harmony would be the result of reconciliation. Church unity is thus a gift of this reconciliation. I thought this was very well said. Very well said. Atonement is coming back to oneness with God and this sinless universe. Question, how can the truth of salvation in Jesus be presented in such a way that it obstructs salvation in Jesus? Can we present the truth of salvation in Jesus in such a way that we obstruct people from experiencing salvation in Jesus? By presenting it again to that imperial law lens, teaching that Jesus had to die to pay a legal penalty, a swage to turn aside the Father's wrath, go to heaven to plead to his Father, to prevent the Father from destroying us. This view is commonly called penal substitution theology and it's a lie. And it's based on the lie that God's law functions like human law and that justice requires God to punish sin and sinners and Jesus took our sin upon himself and God punished Jesus in our place and we, we can claim the legal payment of Jesus in our behalf and be legally declared righteous in heaven even though we remain unrighteous on earth. That's the core of penal. And it's all a fraud. It's a mass lie. And this entire false theology, the SDA church, this is what was happening in 1888, was supposed to reject and move move towards the reality, but the leadership rejected the light and instead stuck with the dark and become purveyors of this dark theology which has just corrupted the functioning and our ability to finish the mission. Salvation was supposed to be presented again through that three angels view of design law. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God was not changed. God's law was not changed. But the condition of the human being, the human species, was changed and was now out of harmony with God and God's design law. This change constituted a terminal condition for human beings. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. We're dead in our trespass and sin. This is our condition. No human born of natural descent could cure this condition. No human could do it. Jesus was born in a unique way, the combination of a sinful woman and God the Holy Spirit. Thus Jesus had a humanity infected with fear and selfishness and could be tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, because he was able to resist that temptation. And by the exercise of human abilities, a human brain, a human power of choice, he could develop a perfect, sinless human character. And according to Hebrews 5.8, once he was, quote, made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. And I asked, wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. Bible perfection does not meet, speak to sinlessness. Bible perfection speaks to maturity of character. God cannot create character. He can create sinless beings like he did Adam and Eve, like he did Lucifer and the fallen angels before they sinned. Character, though, is developed by the exercise of the choices of that sentient being. And once Christ was made perfect, once he was tempted in every way just like we are, but chose with his human mind, his human ability to resist those temptations and to establish in his being by choice the perfection of God's kingdom, then he became the source of salvation for all who obey. And he rose... On the third day, in a perfected humanity that he offers to share with each of us, we can become partakers of the divine nature. For you computer geeks, Jesus restored God's original source code in humanity and eliminated the corrupted code. If you're a computer geek and you think about what happens, your operating system gets bad code in it, the whole system is broken, and think that through. If you have corrupted code on your computer, no amount of external action is going to solve that problem. Well, we have a committee over here, and that committee is going to investigate, and we're going to declare that that code's just the way it should be, even though it's not. That's penal substitution. We're going to declare the code's right, even though the code's not right. Pardon? We're going to pray that the code is right, even though it's not right. No, if you're going to fix it, somebody's got to get into the code and actually eliminate the bad code and put the original operating code back in. That's what Jesus came to do as a human being, into the species human. Now, think about when an update comes to your computer. We all get them. You have to make a choice. Accept it? Yes or no? You want the update? Yes or no? Okay. This is what happens in us, too. When truth presents to your mind... You, it's an update. Truth, yes or no. Will you accept it and bring it into your operating system? Or will you say no and not let it into your system? So the word was made flesh. Jesus, the word, capital W, word, logos, truth. We are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Eating the flesh, we are to partake the updates of truth that Jesus brought. And accept yes, it comes in. It's not just a concept, it comes in and I begin living that truth. My, my system is being updated. Ellen White put it this way, Desire of Ages, 762, one of those books she wrote after this whole divide, and she chose the side of transformation and healing of the person, God's design law, she wrote this, Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifest to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. The law, requ- the law reveals the attributes of God's character, and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition pause why what's that actually mean do you see it through the rules lens they read that and go your rules can't be changed you got to enforce them or do you read it through design law and you think wait a minute can the law of respiration be changed to meet a drowning man underwater can we write a new law that says you don't actually have to breathe to live or does the drowning man have to be changed to be back in harmony with the law The law can't be changed to meet us because life doesn't function outside of God's design. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Notice, reconciling the world to himself, Jesus didn't die to reconcile God to us. God didn't need changing. God's law didn't need changing. Much of Christian, the penal substitution view, is God's wrath had to be taken care of. A penalty had to be paid. So not only did we have to be reconciled to God, but they teach God has to be reconciled to us. It's a lie. Keep going with the quote. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. A perfect character. It's like saying the, the law of respiration requires you breathe. That's what, that's what it's saying. But And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Not through a payment. Not through a legal accounting mechanism. Through the forbearance of God. More than this, just like a parent, you've got a child, and they're struggling, they do something to disobey. What is it that, that, that they have remission of? Do you hold that against them, or do you have forbearance for them, trying to lead them to be more mature? Okay? Through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. Justice? What is the justice thing here? What what is the just means doing what's right? What's the right action, the just thing for God to do? What's God's justice in this context? Doing what's right, and what's the right thing to do when you see a loved one dying and you have the ability to save them? God's justice is providing the perfect character in Christ for us. The legal lie of penal substitution theology cheats people from this genuine healing. It teaches them that the problem is a legal one and the solution needs to happen not in the heart but in the courts of heaven, that God must have a payment made to him, that in heaven you will be declared righteous but on earth you will not be made righteous, you you will remain unrighteous. Thus the penal view creates a false security, undermines trust in God, increases fear, prevents genuine healing of heart and mind and prevents the church from finishing the work so Christ can come. We will not finish this work as a people as long as we present this legal lie to people. Monday's lesson, second coming of Christ. First paragraph states, all who love Christ look forward with anticipation to the day that they will be be able to share face-to-face fellowship with him. Do you look forward to that? Face-to-face fellowship. Now what does the Bible say enables us to share face-to-face fellowship. First John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is face-to-face communication. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What is it that enables us to have that face-to-face communication?
1: To be like Jesus.
0: To be like him in character. That's why we'll be able to stand in his presence. Have you ever heard the, within the Adventist church this idea that one day we will stand in God's presence without an intercessor?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, under the legal model, I've seen many Adventists terrified by this. Because in the legal model, he's the perfect judge who knows all the secrets. There's no hiding. There's no suppression of evidence. There's no tossing out because you didn't have the right search warrant. I mean, he's going to know it all. And without Jesus there between you, they're terrified because he won't have his righteousness standing there to hide you from the judge. So he'll see and scrutinize and see all the corruption in you. And then he's required by law because he's a just person. He can't break the law. And even if he loves you, he's just required to still use his power to torment and kill you. So they're terrified to stand front God's presence without an intercessor. That's what the legal model does. It's a huge lie. What's the truth? Christ's intercessions are primarily designed for what purpose? To influence God? He's interceding in your hearts and minds to win you back to trust, to put the righteousness, to imbue you with his righteousness, to fix you, to restore you, to purify you as he is pure. And so once he finishes his work and writes his law in your heart and mind, and it's no longer you that live, but Christ lives in you, He's finished his work of intercession. He can step out of the way now, and you can step into God's presence because you are like him. There's no more work for him to do to fix it. See? It's not terrifying, it's exciting when you come to design law. The lesson points us to the parable of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish, all have lamps, all are looking for the coming of the bridegroom, which is Christ, and but only five have oil in their lamps and are ready to meet Christ when he comes. And when he comes, and the bride comes, the five foolish, ask the five wise for some oil, but they can't give him the oil. What is the right understanding of this parable? What is the oil that the five wise virgins could not share with the fool? Did you ever read that as a kid growing up and go, well, why were they so funny? I remember the little song we used to sing, if you have two doughnuts and <laughs> your friend has none. You remember the song in... Cradle roll we used to sing. We're supposed to share, right? So why are these five wise versions so selfishly hoarding their oil and not willing to share with the full? Fo- I, I remember thinking this growing up. You ever think that? Okay. Well, why? You can't.
1: It's character.
0: So here, a historic view, again from Ellen White. She wrote about this. The oil of grace gives to men the courage and supplies to them the motives for doing every day the work that God appoints to them. The five foolish virgins had lamps. This means a knowledge of scriptural truth. But they had not the grace of Christ. Day by day, they went through the round of ceremonies and external duties, but their service was lifeless, devoid of the righteousness of Christ, that righteous character they don't have. They have a legal application of rules, but no internal change of heart. The sun of righteousness did not shine in their hearts and minds, and they had not the love of the truth which conforms the life and character, the image to the image and superscription of Christ. The oil of grace was not mingled with their endeavors. Their religion was a dry husk without the true kernel. They held fast to forms of doctrine. They were deceived by their Christian life, full of self righteousness, and failing to learn lessons in the school of Christ, which, if practiced, would have made them wise into salvation. That was Review and Herald, March 27, 1894. And this is Testimonies of Ministers 233. Now is the time for the careless to arouse from their slumber. Now is the time to entreat. That souls shall not only hear the word of God, but without delay secure oil in their vessels with their lamps. That oil is the righteousness of Christ. It represents character, and character is not transferable. That's why they didn't share it. I can't give you my character. You can't give me your character. But we can partake through the grace of Christ, through the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds, we can partake of the character of Christ and develop Christ-like character. How can the truth of righteousness of Christ be misrepresented through the legal lie? How can that happen? by teaching that we are legally declared to be righteous when we accept the legal payment, but we're never made righteous, we remain unrighteous. So we don't even seek to have character transformation. We live in the knowledge that it's not possible, that we can't be renewed, we can't become Christ-like, we just have legal payment. You have a question?
1: My question is, the legalists are more careful to keep the rules and regulations. And we know that our actions influence our thinking in our heart, as well as our heart influence our actions. They're connected to each other. So they try to impose all the rules and regulations to help us change our heart, uh, to help us conform.
0: Are you sure that's why?
1: Well, I mean, with a child, you know, when I raise my children, I try to get them to do the right thing, and after a while it becomes the What
0: problem. makes it right? You want to do the right thing, but what makes it right? Why is it the right thing? I
1: don't you anything.
0: Well, you, whatever you taught them to this is the right thing to do. Why is, that, why is that the right thing to do? Why? Well, because it's good for them, good for others. Okay, if it's good for them, then in some way it's related to design law. For instance, why is it right to brush your teeth? Because of the second law of thermodynamics. If you don't put energy into the system, it will decay. So it's right to brush your teeth, to keep your teeth healthy. And okay, that's why it's right. Correct? Or is it right, your, your your 20 year old goes off to college, you're brushing your teeth, roommate says, hey, why are you brushing your teeth? What's the right thing to do? Why is it right? Well, my mom has a rule and I always keep mom's rules. <laughs> is that why it's right? <clears throat> That's not why it's right, is it? No. No. And so rules can be helpful for children to help them do things they don't comprehend, but they have to be in some way connected to the design reality of God's kingdom, and Can you have a rule that moves away from that design? For instance, is there a story, remember the story that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan? Yes or no? Okay, we have the Levite, we have the priest, we have the Samaritan, we have the wounded man. Now, let's look at the rules. Who's the rule keepers? Who's keeping the Sabbath? Who's sacrificing properly? Who's paying their tithe? Who's dressing in the right clothing? The priest and the Levite, right? As far as we know, the Samaritan, did he ever do the sanctuary service stuff, uh, bring sacrifices to the Jewish temple, keep the Sabbath day? Did he ever keep the rules? Which one of these in this story is right with God? But he didn't keep the rules. How can he be right with God if he didn't keep the rules? His heart was because he was living the real law that all those other things were just metaphorically designed to teach. So can a person keep the rule, let's say we have a rule in church, baptism, we used have Jesus, we need to go and be baptized in water. And so we baptize somebody in water and they're baptized in water, keeping the proper rule and doing it in the right so-called way. Does that mean anybody who does that, now they're saved? Or is that simply a symbol to help teach a lesson Of a larger reality, which is we are to be immersed in the Holy Spirit and have our whole being renewed, righteousness by faith, and so we have baptism of the heart, mind, and character into the character of Christ. So we can keep the rule, but never actually experience the reality. So rules can be helpful only to the degree they lead us back to reality.
1: That's what I'm saying.
0: But many of the level four people disconnect the two. And it's just about the rule keeping And this is what the Pharisees were. They were vigilant. Hey, your disciples don't wash their hands. In the ritualistic way, not in the germ-killing way. They don't wash their hands. They pulled heads of grain on Sabbath. We have a rule about that. Hey, you healed this dude and you told him to carry his bed. That's breaking our rule. They were very rule-focused. And all their rules caused them to break God's design law. And that's the danger with the rules approach. Yes.
1: And so I've heard the criticism of this teaching of this class, yep. for example. The criticism is it leads people not to, to be careless in keeping the commandments.
0: What did the Pharisees accuse Christ of? Seriously, what, you go back and read your New Testament. What did they accuse him of multiple times? You're leading people away from the law of God. You're, 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 not, you're not vigilant to the law. Didn't they accuse him of it constantly? Matthew 5, don't think I've come to change the law. I haven't come to change the law. Not one jot or tittle of law will be changed unless heaven passes away because he's talking design law. I won't change the least slightest little bit of the law of gravity, the law of physics, the law of the moral, any of the laws you change, life as we know it ceases to exist. I'm not going to change the laws. I'm here to fulfill or to live in harmony or to fully live out the design law. But all these rules you've got over here, they're not part of design law. And so, yeah, the criticism comes, and those critics are, if you remember the moral levels of decision-making, they're level four or below. They don't even see the reality of God's design law any more than the, than, the, uh, than the Pharisees saw it, and they were really angry. Great questions, and keep asking them. That's awesome. So the design law truth is that God is working through Christ via the Holy Spirit to reproduce Christ-likeness within us. Some have asked, well, wait, wait a second, we just read, character is not transferable. We just read that. Remember that? Do we believe that's true? We, we see how that worked. I can't transfer my character. To you. Well, if that's the case, then how do we how do we get Christ's character then? If he if we can't transfer character, how is His character in us? How does that work? There's a design law called the law of worship by beholding. We become changed. This is a design law. You cannot avoid it. You become like that which you admire, you esteem, you love, you adore, you spend time worshiping, meditating on. Your neurobiology changes. We, have, we can document this. Your character changes. Your motives change. And when you're doing, and you're living in harmony with that design law in conjunction with our creator God and you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, as you get those truth updates, update truth, And you go, yes, click, yes, accept, (laughs) and then you choose it, then the Holy Spirit empowers you to live that truth, and you're changed. And then another truth update comes, yes, click, boom, and I've changed again. (laughs) Seriously, how this happens? You will know the truth, and the truth will Set. set you free. Since some of those updates are so important that you have to restart your system. Yes, there has to be a complete reboot. Literal <laughs> rebooting of, of the entire device and operating system. And we call that dying to? Self. Self. And Paul says, I die? Daily. I reboot daily. Hmm. Exactly right. Yes, hand.
1: Being a seven-day event is for most of my life, we've been hammered with the Ten Commandments. If you break one, you've broken them all. But when Jesus came, he, he elaborated on the Ten Commandments. And he said, for example, he talked about, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, and he, he explained that. So that the Ten Commandments that we were kept are not the design law. You know, because we don't, we don't show the love in the Ten Commandments. You know what I mean? The,
0: right. So the Ten Commandments is the way I understand them, according to Scripture. They were added, Galatians, they were added, and, or in Romans, so that sin might abound, meaning they were added so that we could see more clearly the corruption in our characters, that we could see more clearly how infected with fear and selfishness we are, that we could be diagnosed accurately. So they're like an MRI for the soul. There's something you look at and you go, whoa, I'm, that, that's not, and, and Paul, of course, really honed in on Number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Because the first nine, you could pharisaically do behaviorally. If you look at all first nine, you could take behaviors to act those out and think you're doing good. But number 10, there's no behavior. And he understood suddenly this is not about a behavior modification. This is about a heart transformation. And so... There's two ways to help in a healthy way to understand the Ten Commandments, in my view. One, as a diagnostic instrument to help bring us to a conviction that there's something wrong that we need healing from. There's also another way to understand them, and that is a description of what you look like when you're healed. Back when I was in med school, one of the hospitals that uh, we had uh, was originally built as a tuberculosis hospital at the turn of the last century. And as you walked in the lobby, there was a giant seal still in the, in the floor uh, about the tuberculosis hospital there. And if you had tuberculosis and you were hospitalized, they might have on the wall, after your treatment and when you leave here, you shall not cough. You shall not spit up blood. You shall not have fever. See? And so the 10 commandments when God finishes work writes his law in our hearts and minds, you shall have no other gods before me. You will not take my name in vain. You will honor your mother and father. You will not murder and so forth and so on. This is a description of what we look like when the law of love is restored in us. So there's no legal Application to the Ten Commandments in a healthy worldview what happens is we take scripture and we already have a premise that God functions and his law functions no different than a human government and thus then we interpret it through that lens and we make this imperialistic thing and then God becomes a a, a policeman in the sky monitoring for breaches handing out his heavenly tickets and if you don't get somebody to pay your penalty then he'll punish you in hell or for as long as you deserve before he kills you and it's all corruption does that make sense? so back to this How do we experience the character of Christ? Christ sends his spirit to inspire us to a better life, to draw us, to woo us. He's the spirit of truth, he enlightens us. But when the truth comes to our minds in ways we comprehend, we are left free to choose update, yes, reject, no. When we update yes, then we are empowered by the Spirit to live out the truth. And as we live out the truth, it has a transforming power on us, and our new connections are made, and new ideas open, and we have new truth that comes because God's infinite. We're constantly growing and advancing in the truth, and our brains rewire. Thus, Jesus is the pattern that we behold, and via the indwelling Spirit, we become like Jesus as we choose to accept, agree, surrender, and apply. His design laws to our lives. This is uh, from Our Father Cares, written by Ellen White, page 26. She starts with this Bible text, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it's, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is where Paul describes the law of worship, one of the places. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a, a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Notice how we are being changed. By beholding, fix your eyes on Christ, the scripture says. Now she goes on to expound on this. When enlightened by the spirit of God, the believer beholds the perfection of Christ and beholding this perfection, he rejoices with joy unspeakable. In self, he sees sin and helplessness. In the redeemer, sinlessness and infinite power. The sacrifice that Christ made in order that he might impart to us his righteousness. This is the theme upon which we may dwell with deeper and still deeper enthusiasm. Self is nothing. Jesus is everything. According to this first paragraph, what's being described is the purpose of Christ's death. The sacrifice that Christ made was in order that he might impart to us his righteousness. He died to restore righteousness in humanity. That's his purpose. Penal view, he died to pay a legal penalty. He died to assuage his wrath, father's wrath. He died to appease the anger of his dad. It's all a lie. He died to restore perfection in his children. Next paragraph. The transforming power of grace can make me a partaker of the divine nature. That's a, you know, quote from Peter. Uh, On Christ, the glory of God has shown, and by looking upon Christ, contemplating his self-sacrifice, remembering that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the believer is drawn closer and closer to the source of power. How essential that we have the enlightenment of the Spirit of God. For thus only can we see the glory of Christ and by beholding become changed from character to character in and through faith in Jesus. How are we changed? The Corinthians text, from glory to glory, by what? By beholding Christ. This is the law of worship. You cannot avoid. See, when you break the laws of health, you cannot avoid health-related problems. You can't avoid them. Conversely, when you harmonize with the laws of health, you can't avoid getting better. When you harmonize with God, when you behold Christ, when you choose to assimilate Him, when you adore Him, you can't avoid growing in godliness. It's the natural outcome that happens. He has grace and pardon for every soul. As by faith we look to Jesus, our faith pierces the shadow and we adore God for his wondrous love in giving Jesus the the comforter. The The sinner may become a child of God, an heir of heaven, He may rise from the dust and stand forth arrayed in garments of light. Every step of advance he sees new beauties in Christ and becomes more like him in character. How do we become a child of God? By beholding Christ, by loving Christ, by saying, I adore you, I open my heart to you, the Spirit comes, enlightens us, transforms us, we choose and agree and grow in godliness and thus we become a child of heaven because we possess the attributes of God, the qualities of God, the character of God, the methods of God, the principles of God and we are recognized but all, look, hey, that's one of God's kids, look at how that kid lives, that's one of God's children. The love that was manifest toward him in the death of Christ awakens a response of thankful love. In an answer to sincere prayer, the believer is brought from grace to grace, from glory to glory, until by beholding Christ, he is changed into the same image. How do we become partakers? It's not magic. It is exactly how God designed us. And Christ came, partook of humanity, developed a perfect character, and he offers to share it with us. And the Holy Spirit takes all those things and imbues us with those attributes, those desires, those longings. But we have to cooperate by choosing to say, yes, that's what I love. Yes, that's what I want to be like. Yes, that's what I choose to do. And we're empowered to follow through. We don't have the power to do this on our own. Tuesday's lesson, and I really want to make it at least through Wednesday. Tuesday, Jesus' ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus' ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. This is a unique doctrine. Only the SDA church has something like this. No, but it's not that only the SDA church should have this because as I show you, this is going to be something right out of scripture. It's just a metaphor, guys. In the, in the end, this doctrine is just a metaphor of the plan of salvation. That's all it is. It's just another story way to tell what we've already described that God is trying to achieve through Christ which is restoring his image in us. But, It's been corrupted, because in 1888, our church had an opportunity to shift away from a legal view to a design law view, and instead, the leadership chose to stick with the legal view, and this doctrine now is presented through legal lenses. And the classic presentation of this doctrine is that God's laws is imperial or imposed. Jesus is now, or the Father, is in heaven in the role of judge, examining record books in heaven of the recorded deeds of the people on earth and deciding who has had the legal application of Jesus' blood put to their account and who has not, and examining to make sure that every particular sin has been personally confessed and asked to have the blood paid for that account. If there's a sin you forgot to confess that the blood was not paid for, then that one remains on your book, and, when, and then at the end of the thousand years Jesus is going to have to punish you for it and kill you. This is Really the traditional way it's presented. Anybody want to update or or modify the way I presented that, or is that really how you've heard it?
1: Well, the added horror is that if he came to your name while you're still alive and living and made the decision, you have no chance after that to make a correction.
0: Some people (laughs) present it that way, too. And some people present, well, it remains open. uh, Well, no, you're right. That's right. uh, Probation has closed for you. Yeah. And we always assumed he went alphabetical, so people with last with A, we were, wrong. We yeah, right. But do you see how ugly that view is? Do you see why most of Christianity rejects that entire thing? That doesn't make any sense at all. They reject it, and rightly so. But there's a really beautiful truth there that, that's been obscured by the false law lens. I was taught that he went chronologically, so he was going to catch you sooner. By birth order. Exactly. Yeah, by birth order. When you were so, yeah, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> okay. But but what's but so let's go back though and use the metaphor. Now, do we, without the whole investigative judgment sanctuary doctrine, do all of Christians believe there's records in heaven? Whether they call them the Lamb's Book of Life or the record books of heaven, uh, all Christians believe that, right? There's records in heaven. This is what's being examined in the investigative judgment doctrine, the records of heaven. Question, according to the founders of the SDA Church, Ellen White, who helped found this particular whole doctrine of of the sanctuary and investigative judgment, what's actually recorded in those records of heaven? Under the legal view, all the deeds you've ever done. That's what's recorded. Listen to this. This is out of TSB 62. It says, remember your character is being daguerreotyped, daguerreotyped is an old 19th century word for photograph, is being photographed by the great master artist, capitalized master artist, in the record books of heaven. What's being put in the record books of heaven? Your character is being photographed into the record books of heaven, as minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. What do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern, capital P, Jesus Christ? Are you washing your robes of character, making them white in the blood of the Lamb? Notice, this description, the blood is a metaphor that you wash your robes, which is also a metaphor of your character to make your character perfect like Christ. But that's not in the penal view. The blood is being applied to the books in heaven, something external to you. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward will be with me to give any man according to his work shall be. That was a quote out of Revelation 22. His work shall be. What work is it talking about? Character development. You have every decision you're making is impacting. Here's another. This is out of uh, Testimony of Ministers, page 429. Every passing hour of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in carelessness in self-pleasing as if of no value are deciding our everlasting destinies wait a minute I thought there was a courtroom in heaven one day where the books would be open and the judge is going to examine and the judge is going to make a decision and it's the judge's decision in heaven that decides my everlasting destiny that's the penal view it's not true you decide your everlasting destiny it's not a tribunal it's not a review of a book the words we, continue with the quote, the words we utter today will go on echoing when time shall be no more. The deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven just as the features are transferred to the artist on the polished plate. Again, talking about the daguerreotype, the photograph. So why are the deeds transferred to the records in heaven? Why? Is this suggesting a list of acts Or is it describing how your acts react upon your character and burn into your heart, into your mind, into your character until you are a cheat, until you are a liar, until you are a murderer, until you are an adulterer. In other words, your acts change your character and it's seared into your character and the records show your character. That's why it's there. Or conversely, you've accepted Christ and love and righteousness and selflessness and other centeredness and honesty and loyalty and truthfulness and faithfulness is seared into your heart and mind. And that's what's in the record in heaven. This legal view makes it about actions and deeds, it's a lie was supposed to be rejected by the Adventist church in 1888, and instead the leadership rejected the Righteousness by Faith movement with a transformation of the heart and mind and character, the design law view, and stuck with this legal thing, unless the whole organization from hierarchy down has been misrepresenting the entire end-time message. Continuing on. Just as the features transferred to the artist under the polished plate... They will determine our destiny for eternity, for bliss or eternal loss and agonizing remorse. What will determine our destiny? Our character. Our character. Let me One more sentence in this quote. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes, nor just as a man is about to die. Character building must be done in this life. Yes?
1: So what happened in 1844?
0: We're going to get to that in just a moment. Okay. So what's in the records of heaven? An exact transcript or copy of our character. Now imagine if you have a video camera videoing you right now, and on the screen we see your face on the screen, and there's dirt all over your face, and so we see dirt all over your face on the screen. If we don't want to see dirt on the screen, what are we going to have to do? Get up there with some Windex and start cleaning the screen? If <laughs> we don't want to see dirt on your face, what are we going to have to do? If you don't want dirt in your record in heaven... You can't have Jesus working on your record in heaven. He has to work in your heart here. And the record in heaven reflects that work. That's how it reality works. And this is known as the cleansing of the sanctuary message. Which is described in Daniel 8.14. Until 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. The same author, again, describing the time, because Daniel 8.14 only gives us a time frame. You're asking 18.44. And if you look at the Bible prophecy, we're not going to spend time looking at that day. All this stuff comes out to 18.44. What happened in 18.44? Daniel 8.14 only gives you a time frame. Listen to this author who, right? Faith I Live By, page 207. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 8.14. The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as presented in Daniel 7.13. And the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi are descriptions of the same event. Well, what did Malachi describe? Malachi 3, 1 through 3. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. See, coming to his temple. Same same thing. His sanctuary. The messenger of the covenant, covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming who shall stand when he appears for he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver he will purify the levites, levites and make them like gold and silver so it's the same event as Daniel 14 so what is to be cleansed at the end of time before Christ comes 1844 in the landscape of human history we move into the end of time for the second coming of Christ and what is to be cleansed before Christ comes the hearts and minds of his people, so he has a people ready to meet him. Because we will be like him when we when he comes. We will see him face to face, where we shall be like him. That's what began happening. And so why eighteen forty four. Yes, why 1844, Okay. And why does what does this have to do with investigation and judgment? Well, Daniel 7.13 also describes the same event, according to this author, and I think it does. And what's happening in Daniel 7.13? Jesus is coronated. Jesus comes and is accepted as the head of humanity and, the, and gets all his power. You'll see the same thing described in, in Revelation chapter 5, when all this power is given to Christ. And the, in, Reve- in Daniel 7, the court was seated. The royal court, not the judicial court. The royal court was seated and the books were opened. Revelation 7. Who can open the book sealed with the seven seals? And you see the description, uh, almost exactly like Daniel 7, of Christ being adored and all power given to him and he is the one who can open the book. So this is Christ coming at the end of that to open these books. What's, what's going on? What's this about? Well, Daniel 7 if you read after Daniel 7.13, the angel goes on to describe what this actually means. What's the interpretation of this dream, and what is it? I beheld uh, this this little horn power wars against the saints, prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints. And when is this? Daniel 7.13 is the same as Daniel 8.14, the same as Malachi 3. This is the end of time period, sometime in 1844 and thereafter, where the Ancient of Days comes and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High God. This has been historically read through the imperial law lens. And they read this. Well, that's when, this, when there's a judicial process in heaven and the books are heaven, are open, and God begins rendering judgments for or against the saints. Who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost? Completely wrong. It's, it's through the wrong law lens. You have to go back to design law. The little horn's waging power against the saints and is defeating them. Waging war. What kind of war? Use your Bible. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war like the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So this little horn power, this, this, this force is going to arise and it's going to begin warring against God's people and it's going to be winning until... A period of time when judgment is given to the saints. What does that mean, given to the saints? Is that a judicial or is that an imparting of discernment? A parting of capacity to tell the right from the wrong. We have judgment. We are given judgment to make a judgment. Well, let's, Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Paul describes the same thing. I won't read the whole thing because we're running out of time. and I really got to get to Wednesdays too. But he talks about the man of sin, that man of perdition. The second coming won't happen until this he comes along and he, quote, sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Same thing is being described here as Daniel 7. An evil power wars against the saints and imposes them. In the aftermath of Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, did this man of sin that Paul describes in Thessalonians go up into heaven, knock Jesus off his throne, and begin ruling in heaven. No, it's not in heaven that he sets himself up in God's temple. It's on earth that he sets himself up in God's temple, and it wasn't in Jerusalem. It's in the spirit temple that he gets us to conceive of God with the attributes of Satan, an authoritarian dictator who we need to be protected from, who will use his power to torture and kill and burn you in hell for all eternity. And Christians believe that unless Satan is reigning in the spirit temple until judgment is given to the saints. Until a time comes in history when we have recovered enough biblical truth that we can reject this lie and come back to worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Under the legal model, it's been again misrepresented. 1888, the church went down the wrong road, and they have presented this since then until the hour in which God has a judicial meet, hat, process in heaven, and He begins uh, legally going. No. Until the hour in human history comes, fear God and, and, and give glory to him, for the hour has come to make a right judgment about God. The hour of his judgment has come because we're in a war over the knowledge of God. And God has been misrepresented, and we have to make a judgment. Is God like Satan reveals him to be? Or is God like Jesus revealed him to be? And those saints at this time in human history who reject the imperial view of God and accept the designer view of God are having their temples cleansed truth is coming and they go yes click update yes click update and their characters are being transformed and they're becoming like christ and they're preparing to meet him and see him face to face this is the cleansing of the, this is the 1844 process that was supposed to happen for the people on earth before christ comes i could go on and on about that but we're going to jump into wednesday's lesson and we are going to spend a few minutes on the question of the sabbath the commandment says remember the sabbath day to keep it holy what does this mean if we built a golden altar and had an orgy of pagan worship during the Sabbath hours, have we made the Sabbath less holy? No. Get your mind around what I just said. Remember the Sabbath, they keep it holy. If we do the most grotesque pagan worship on Sabbath hours, have we made the Sabbath less holy? Can you actually do anything to make the Sabbath more or less holy? So is it about keeping the Sabbath holy It's about keeping ourselves holy. And if you look at the Hebrew word translated it in the commandment, the word actually can be translated him, that, this, he, which, who, such, wherein, she, himself. One word can be translated all those different ways. So we can get a completely different meaning by making that word go like this. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping yourself holy. Mm -hmm. Remember the Sabbath day in order to stay holy. Now, according to Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It is it possible that the Sabbath was, was given by God to humankind for our holiness, to assist us or aid us in maintaining our holiness. And, and can you maintain holiness one day out of seven? Can you stay holy one day a week? and the other six not. So something, you get your mind around, what the, hmm, what's this mean? What is holiness? Holiness is a state of being holy, okay. What does that mean? I would like to suggest being holy is being in harmony with God in all aspects of your being. Living in harmony with God's character, protocols, methods, design laws, Being restored to Christ-likeness. Being holy means being like God. I would like to suggest that. If you have another insight or or definition, I'd like to know it. So how is the Sabbath related to this? When was the Sabbath created? And remember, the Sabbath was made. It was built. It was created. There was a time in universal history in the past there was no Sabbath. It didn't exist prior to the creation of this planet. Many Adventists really stumble on this because they are locked into the legal view, and the law is an eternal law, and, and God's law is is perpetual and eternal, is true law. But the Ten Commandments are not eternal. The Ten Commandments were written for a sinful human need, as a distillation and expression of the eternal law. When the Sabbath was made, was the universe in sinless perfection, or had sin entered the universe? sin had already entered. Lucifer had already started his rebellion when the Sabbath was made. Get your mind around that. So the Sabbath is somehow built for holiness purposes, specifically aid for humankind, God in his foreknowledge knew we'd need it, but it was built in the context of a war already going on. What kind of war is this? Was it a war of might and power? Revelation talks about that, that um, there was war in heaven, The dragon, Michael fought and the dragon fought and back and forth. You know this word war is from the Greek polemo. From where we get polemic, it's a war of words or arguments or ideas. That was the war in heaven. Satan's the father of lies, okay? The war was never a physical war. It was always a war of ideas. Satan corrupting the minds, the operating system of holy angels with distortions about God that undermined trust and love and incited fear and selfishness and rebellion began in heaven. And in this context, what is God doing? Presenting evidence. Presenting evidence yes. See, when somebody lies about you, get, the, get your mind around this. You're the um, pastor of your local church. And your head elder, who also happens to be your brother, stands up before the church one weekend with tears in his eyes and said, I, I'd like you to pray for my brother or my sister, the pastor, because I've discovered that they've been embezzling money from the church. With tears in his eyes. And will you pray for his repentance, restoration of all the, the thousands and thousands he's been stealing? Now you haven't taken a penny. Not one cent of you. It's a lie. Well, if you get up before the church and say, I'm sorry my brother's told this lie about me, but I haven't taken a cent. Is that, a, is that issue settled? Mm-hmm. Does everybody now trust you? No. If, if, if you want to bring that issue to closure once the lie is told, what's required? Just a declaration of truth? Is that all that's required? It's an audit. Uh, an audit where line by line and penny by penny, the evidence exonerates the innocent and exposes the liar. Okay? So certainly God in Christ stood up and said what Lucifer is saying is false. But once the lie was out there, declarations don't win. There needed to be evidence. So what's God do? First Corinthians 4.9. We are a theater, a lesson book to angels and to men. First Corinthians 4.9. He began to create. Let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let us make man in our image. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity and create beings in their image, there's this new creation in perfect love. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply in a world without sin and as they have children in a world without sin if they would have stayed loyal and faithful would they have had children to abuse to dominate to coerce to pressure to mistreat or would Adam and Eve have constantly been giving of themselves for the health and welfare of not only their children but all the animals and and other lower life forms on this planet and the universe would have looked in and said oh I get it God is is the source of all good he's the source of all he's constantly giving himself for our good we're not there to wait on him and serve him he's constantly serving us But Satan is a liar and has and imagine the amount of power that had to be used to create this planet. We take a couple grams of matter and we take that matter and we turn it into energy. That's called a nuclear explosion. Just a couple of grams. That's how much energy. A couple of grams. How much energy to, to create this whole planet? To create the planets of our solar system? To create our sun? We, we can't conceive of that kind of power. And so there was great power displayed during creation week of this planet. And if you want biblical evidence that the angels are already there watching, it's in Job chapter thirty-eight. Were you, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you possess the morning stars sang in chorus, and the sons of God shouted for joy when the earth was created. They were there watching. And imagine Satan now begin to intimidate. Hey, guys, I never said he wasn't powerful. He's just flexing his muscles. He's trying to tell you, look, I can I can wipe you out in a second. I can replace you with new intelligences anytime I want. He's trying to intimidate you to, to get you to fear his power, so you'll bow to him. And so what does God do? He said, Universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence we're given. Now, universe, take twenty four hours aside. I rest my case. No coercion no pressure. What does it say about a ruler in the face of a war to try to dethrone his rulership? Rather than using f- power to coerce, he steps back and leaves his beings free. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. Day one through six we re- reveals God has power. It's day seven that shows the character of the one who wields. He is a God of truth who presents the evidence in love and leaves his beings free. And thus we remember the Sabbath day to keep ourselves holy by practicing those principles. And only those who practice those principles seven days a week in the way they live and treat all human beings are Sabbath keepers. Any person who suspends their businesses from Sunset Friday to Sunset Saturday but uses the methods of coercion, intimidation, force like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, like Saul of Tarsus prior to Damascus Road, are beastly. It's the system of the beast. It doesn't matter what day you church on, folks. It doesn't matter what character you have. But then the Sabbath becomes a sign or an evidence. How did it come into existence as a day of rest? It was created that way. Design law, built, designed, constructed that way. And then the Sunday, how did it come to a day of worship? It was legislated. A group of, of ecclesiastical rulers got together and, and legislated it to be a day of worship. So it stands and represents the system of imperialism. It's just signs or symbols, that's all they are. Two methods of living that they represent. But what happens is that once the Adventist church went down the legal road and rejected the 1888 message, they then took the Seventh-day Sabbath and started presenting it through the legal lens of an arbitrary test of obedience. And God, if, if you go to church on this day, you get the seal of God just because you go to church on that day. If you go to church on this day, you get the mark of the beast just because you go to church on that day. And therefore, it's, all, it's, a, it's an arbitrary test of obedience and only those who have the right day are part of God's remnant and be the seal of God. And God will then be forced to punish those who don't keep that day and thus they present the Sabbath in a beastly way. And it's a lie. Amen. Amen.
1: We are uh, God's living audit in progress. That's the way I see it.
0: Thank you. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are an amazing God of love and truth and you give us real freedom. We ask that your spirit of truth and love be poured out upon us, enlightening our minds, transforming our characters, writing your design protocols back into us, updating us, transforming us, helping us to be like you, and then enabling us to send this message forward. And we ask that you will will remove some of the obstacles in this world around us to this final message that we can lighten the world and see you face-to-face being transformed by your presence to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.